This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, June 26, 2017, episode 41, concerning the examination of Cuthbert's body, 1104. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today we have the second installment of our three-part series on the body of St. Cuthbert, uh, which turns out not to have had quite the quick turnaround that I proposed last time. Um, You know, I'm an academic in the summer. Uh, I thought, my time's my own, the world is my oyster. And the only thing I learn, summer upon summer, is that in the absence of an external schedule, my time management skills are terrible. Uh, I've toyed with the idea of uh, trying to live by a monastic clock, um, even dividing the night's sleep into two units, first sleep and second sleep, with a wakeful period between, to better understand you know, one aspect of uh, monastic lifestyle. Um, I've never actually carried out this experiment, but maybe I should give it a try this summer. Uh, And instead of singing psalms or praying, uh, I can write and read or even record at fixed intervals throughout the day. But on to today's topic. Uh, So, as we saw last time, when St. Cuthbert's body was removed from its burial place by the monks of Lindisfarne in 698, they discovered that it had not suffered decay, that it was incorruptible, which was recognized as a token of sanctity. That significantly elevated uh, the body's status as a relic, um, and bestowed a particular kind of power on that monastic community, uh, first at Lindisfarne and later at Durham, uh, where they settled after the Vikings shook up Northumbria in the 11th century. But it gave them power because this prevented the body from being divided up into multiple bone relics and parceled out to religious houses all around Britain. Um, It's kind of like the saintly equivalent of an exclusivity deal. You want to partake of the holy aura of St. Cuthbert? Well, you gotta come to Durham. We're the sole distributors of Cuthbert power. Uh, And come they did. And a number of Anglo-Saxon kings and prelates and Canute uh, viewed the body and bestowed gifts upon it. But by 1104, it had been some time since anyone had viewed the body, and rumors began to surface about whether or not it was really incorruptible. Additionally, the saint had been relocated to a temporary shrine when the old church in which he'd been housed was demolished in order to make way for a grand new cathedral, and in 1104, that cathedral is sufficiently completed for Cuthbert to be able to be moved into a new opulent shrine behind the high altar in the choir. And on this occasion, the monks take the opportunity to open up uh, the series of nesting coffins that leads to the carved wooden reliquary chest from 1698 in order to open it and prove that the saint is indeed still inside it, and still incorrupt. So last episode, we heard the so-called anonymous account of this inspection and the public debate it aroused, though I skipped over the details of what they found uh, in that coffin with the saint. Um, I just went back and looked at it, uh, and actually I see all I really omitted was about a paragraph discussing the relics of other saints that had been kept alongside Cuthbert's body, uh, something we heard about way back in episode 22, because those relics included those of the Venerable Bede. Anyway, I said I'd fill in more details about uh, the contents later, to keep you in a bit of mystery, uh, and now is later. So we're going to hear the description of what the monks found inside the coffin, as described by the monk Reginald of Durham, uh, who did hear a little bit from last time. Reginald wrote a little book, a libellus, on the miracles of St. Cuthbert, uh, in which this account of the translation of 1104 is included. 
The precise date of Reginald's text isn't known, um, but it includes a reference to something that happened in 1172 and refers to events of the 1160s as happening in our days. Uh, So it's a good bet that Reginald finished writing not long after 1172. That means that for the 1104 translation, Reginald is writing 60 years after the event. So he's not an eyewitness, and he's not likely to be talking to eyewitnesses, um, and certainly not uh, the men who conducted the examination themselves. Uh, He would certainly say so if this were the case. So he's getting his story secondhand from people who knew the people who conducted the examination. And a quick note on that, um, you're about to hear Reginald list these men, and one of the names he gives is Simeon. And this is generally accepted uh, as being the same Simeon of Durham who is the author of the History of the Church of Durham, one of our major chronicles and one of the texts we've featured multiple times on this show. Uh, Simeon himself does not write about the 1104 translation, uh, other than in a few short references to it. Um, Some have proposed that he is the author of the anonymous account, uh, but most scholars reject this theory. Uh, So, the anonymous account and Reginald give us our fullest descriptions of the event, Um, It is covered by other chroniclers, but not in this degree of detail. And the detail is remarkable. Feats of memory, especially communal memory in largely oral cultures, uh, shouldn't be surprising to us. Um, And I suppose Reginald isn't that far removed from the moment he's describing, especially compared to other historians. Uh, But still, he rivals our 19th century antiquarian James Rain for the specificity of material observation he provides Um, And Rain had the objects he was writing about uh, mostly right there in front of him. If we didn't have the surviving relics, and spoiler alert for the next episode, I guess, uh, yes, there are some fairly amazing artifact survivals recovered from Cuthbert's grave in 1827. Um, But if we didn't have these as confirmation, it would be tempting to dismiss Reginald's catalog of details as maybe just the typical medieval elaboration and invention upon a theme. You know, why just say costly robes, um, as our anonymous account does, when you can fill in details based on what you imagine the appropriate kind of design ought to be? But as it turns out, Reginald's descriptions do seem to accord pretty well um, with what was actually found. Okay, we'll get to the text in just a moment, but first, a few quick explanatory notes on what's coming up. We're given some measurements in cubits, the biblical unit. Uh, which is traditionally reckoned as the length of the forearm, or approximately 18 inches. Um, For some reason, the definition of a cubit seems to have become a really common piece of trivia. Uh, So if you didn't already know it, as probably many of you did, uh, certainly you can file that away for future pub quiz night. Also, one of the chief relics found with Cuthbert is the skull of St. Oswald, king of Northumbria in the early 600s. Um, Oswald earned his sainthood by being one of the major proponents of Christianity in Northumbria, supporting the Irish missionaries who were working to convert the pagan Anglo-Saxons. He died in battle and was dismembered, and his head displayed on a pike, uh, and this head eventually found its way to Lindisfarne, where it wound up being enshrined with St. Cuthbert, Um, although there are other alleged heads of Oswald floating around out there. One little micro-theme I'd like to point out uh, that shows up in this excerpt, so that you can listen out for it, is the importance of proportionality. Uh, This is an aesthetic principle deeply rooted in the philosophy of the day. Uh, Symmetry, proportion, things being in the appropriate relationships to each other is part of harmony and perfection. Uh, It has an ethical counterpart in decorum, um, appropriate behavior to the circumstances. It's just a little bell that rings out here, but it rings out in two uh, sort of different but interesting places. So listen for that. 
And my last note is just to say that Reginald's book is divided up into rubric chapters. Uh, so the chapter names or descriptions that I'll be reading are from the medieval manuscript tradition and aren't modern editorial editions. So here's Reginald as translated by James Rain in his 1828 book, St. Cuthbert, with an account of the state in which his remains were found upon the opening of his tomb in Durham Cathedral in the year 1827. Chapter 40. Which of the brethren it was who disentombed the body of St. Cuthbert and touched it, and how the relics which were deposited along with him have witness to his sanctity. For the benefit of those who wish to know of the blessedness of St. Cuthbert, we will explain in a few words what we have been able to learn from the elders of the church. These, without doubt, had seen and heard the men who had touched with their hands the incorruptible body of St. Cuthbert had explored it with their steadfast eyes, had lifted it up and sustained it with their clasping arms, and they had learnt every secret concerning him. These were the men, Turgo the prior, Alduin the sub-prior, Leofwin, Wyking, Godwin, and Osborne the sacrists, Henry and William, surnamed Havagrim, both of them archdeacons, Algar, afterwards prior, and Simeon. Osborne, in the direction of the head of St. Cuthbert, taking hold of the holy body, raised it aloft from the place of its repose. Alduin, standing at the other extremity, elevated the sacred feet. And Algar, when the body was bending to the ground in its middle after the manner of a living man, seized it and supported it in his arms. He also assisted the abbot of Siez in unfolding the vestments which enveloped the venerable head of the saint. As soon as the holy body was laid upon tapestry and other robes, Simeon, who held the wax candle in the candlestick, ceased not to kiss the sacred feet of the body and moisten them with his tears. These men related to their hearers the mighty deeds of God and made them better acquainted with certain matters which before were secret, and yet they were unwilling to commit the whole to writing. We, however, have thought proper to record those things, being delighted to know more perfectly the matters which we have not seen and to make known to posterity the things which, as we are aware, will to some be matter of doubt. When once the sacred body was elevated from the place of its repose, the coffin, in which he had hitherto rested reclining upon his right side like one asleep, emitted a fragrant smell of sweetness which filled the air. Even the coffin itself, in which that most sacred body reposed, appeared as fresh as if newly made and was thoroughly dry. The pillow, made of cloth of costly silk which had been placed under the body as far as it had been occupied by it, shone with all the brightness of recent texture. But that part of the pillow or cloth of silk which had been occupied by the relics of the other saints which had been placed by its side was the whole of it devoured by moths and reduced to dust and ashes. And yet not one of the dried bones of any other saint, however closely and compactly it was found adhering to the side of his incorrupt body, had, from its dust or decay, imparted any injury, ashes, or moisture to his more sacred robes. But where those relics of saints had rested, 
That part of the coffin consigned to them had become black beneath a coagulated mass of decaying dust, and from its long contact with the ashes had suffered injury, although it still remained entire. Moreover, the ashes, which naturally caused a still further decay, produced the filth of an earthy dust, and so, when the moth of corruption had dissolved those bones by a natural decay, the dusty particles themselves, possessing a portion of heat, had caused somewhat of the moisture below. Whence it arose that that part of the chest in which any portion of those holy relics had rested was filthy, earthy, and somewhat damp. Wherefore they freed the coffin of St. Cuthbert from these defilements by gathering together the dust and ashes, and gathering together the sacred remains themselves, they placed them in certain wooden receptacles hewn out for the purpose. These are honorably preserved elsewhere in the church, in a large repository expressly made for them, and along with them are preserved some of the wrappers in which these relics had been enveloped, still only half decayed. But because they were not able entirely to scrape off from the part affected, nor to eradicate the discoloring caused by the ashes and the stain proceeding from the moisture which had sunk deeply down, they had recourse to an artifice for remedying the defect. Their first wish was, if possible, to make the disdained part resemble the other perfect parts of the coffin, but this could only be effected by time, and consequently they feared to commence the operation. They therefore, by a device of their own, made a tablet of wood, of such a size as exactly to correspond with the bottom of the coffin internally in length and breadth. This they dried before the fire from the morning till the evening, and they afterwards besmeared and, as far as they could, saturated it with melted wax. Their next step was to affix to it, on its lower side, four feet, one at each corner, of such a length as, when the thickness of the plank and the length of the feet were taken together, constituted the depth of three fingers only, and by placing this false bottom within the coffin, every part of the real bottom, which had been injured by the ashes of the holy relics, was concealed from view. In fact, it had so closely attached itself to the lower bottom of the coffin that to those who saw it, it appeared to be a new, real bottom, lately made smooth by the plane. Its wooden feet beneath supported it upon the old bottom and effectually concealed all its defects. Upon the upper part of the tablet, they placed the incorruptible body of the glorious bishop in the place of his repose, and the other relics were gathered together and put elsewhere by themselves. Whence it comes to pass that the most holy body lays not more than half down in its coffin, because it rests not upon the real bottom of the chest, but upon the tablet. Chapter 41. In what robes that most holy body was enveloped, or what was the handling and the arrangement of the limbs? And forasmuch as he who knows only in part becomes the more anxious to know the rest, let us proceed to those matters which are still undescribed, and begin with the holy body itself. That body, very admirable for its meritorious virtues, seems to be of a tall and manly stature, and yet this tallness is confined within proper bounds. All his limbs, however, are solid, flexible, and whole, and as become a perfect man, folding with nerves, movable with veins full of blood. 
sweet in the softness of flesh, such as give the appearance of one living in the flesh, rather than dead in the body. His body is everywhere enveloped with a very thinly woven sheet of linen, and between this and the body there is no other interior wrapment. This is the winding sheet which Abbas Verka gave him during his lifetime, and which he always preserved for this very purpose. Next to this he is clothed in a priestly alb, and there appears to be an amice on his neck or shoulders. His cheeks and face, and all the surface of the whole of his venerable head, are closely covered by a cloth, which is attached to all the parts beneath it with such a degree of anxious care that it is, as it were, glued to his hair, skin, temples, and beard. This cloth could in no one part, by the art of anyone, be ever so elevated, torn asunder, or raised from beneath, either from his skin or flesh. Not even by the very sharpest extremity of the nails was it in any place able to be drawn or pinched up, or in any perceptible degree to be pulled asunder. Through this his nostrils and eyelids were sufficiently clear and visible, but yet the skin below, or the more tender flesh beneath, was not able to be seen distinctly. So also, as far as the joints of his neck, all the functionary parts of the head, and the organs of the senses of man, were, in the same manner, covered. Nor was there, after every attempt, any apparent means by which they could be distinctly viewed. His nose at its junction with his forehead seemed to be somewhat turning rapidly outwards, and his chin appeared to those who saw it as if the lower bone was furrowed by a twofold division, in which furrow, so distinct on each side, the quantity of almost a transverse finger might be laid, because its highest tip was so indented. Above all these, there is a purple face cloth, which conceals and covers beneath it the whole of the mitre upon his head. It does not easily appear of what kind of thread this face cloth is woven, inasmuch as there is at the present time no such manufacture. Upon the forehead of the holy bishop there is a fillet of gold, not of woven work, but of gold only externally, which sparkles with most precious stones of different kinds scattered all over its surface. Persons devout, rather than curious, who had beheld the sacred interior of his coffin, wishing to view his naked flesh, raised aloft the face cloth which I have mentioned, and thus, between the joints of his neck and the confines of his shoulders, saw the softness of his flesh and handled it with their hands. They saw it, they touched it with their fingers and hands, and found that it was equally consistent over the whole of his body. Above the alb he was decorated with a stole and fanon, the extremities of which are for a short space visible near his feet but yet no one can ascertain the precise nature of their texture, for their inner parts are covered by the tunic and dalmatic, which are above them. But the extremities of their borders appear to be of most costly workmanship. Chapter 42 Concerning his episcopal robes, and of what value, color, grace, elegance, and of how great beauty and wonderful nature they are. After the manner of Christian bishops, next to these he was clothed with a tunic and dalmatic, both of which are of great elegance and well worthy of admiration, consisting of the costly color of purple ornamented in the loom. For instance, the dalmatic, which is the more visible on account of its being the upper robe of the two, appears to those who have more than ordinary experience in such matters to be of purple, tinged with red, a color at this period unknown. This robe still retains the grace of its original freshness and beauty, and, as it were, 
crackles in the fingers of those who handle it, on account of the solidity of the work and the stiffness of the thread. In it there are woven figures, as well of birds as of small animals, extremely minute in their workmanship and subdivisions. To add to its beauty, the robe is variegated by frequent dashes of another color, which is proved to be of citron. This variety has a very beautiful effect upon the purple ground, and by its spots causes new formations of diversity. This tint of citron color appears to have been sprinkled over it, as it were, in drops, and its effect is such as to compel the reddish appearance of the purple to shine with greater force and brilliancy. The extreme termination of this dalmatic is everywhere surrounded by a border of thread of gold, like embroidery, which, on account of the quantity of gold interwoven in its texture, is not easily bent, and even then with a crackling noise. It may be rolled or folded up, but yet, on account of its close texture, unless it be held in either of those positions, it soon of itself assumes its extended state. This border is of the breadth of a hand, and its workmanship was ascertained to have been extremely ingenious. There is the same border upon the extremity of each sleeve, around the wrists or arms of the glorious bishop, but around his neck there is a border broader than the former, and of more incomparable workmanship and worth, which covers the greater part of both his shoulders, as well behind as in front, on account of its being more than a hand and a half in breadth in either direction. His hands reclining upon his breast appear to be extending their stretched-out fingers to heaven and to be incessantly demanding the mercy of God in behalf of a people devoted to him. For he who, at the hour of his death, raised those hands aloft in prayer in behalf of himself, now, since death, hath ever kept them raised for the expiation of our crimes. And yet those who handle them may move them in any direction, may move them inwards or outwards, with as much ease as if they belonged to a living man. In like manner, his arms may be raised and lowered, and all his other limbs may be extended or bent inwards at the will of him who handles them. The chasuble, which was removed from his body eleven years after his burial, was never restored to him afterwards. Upon his feet he wears the episcopal shoes, generally denominated sandals, which in front are perforated with numerous holes of an exceedingly small size, purposely made. But as to any softer inner garment, any monk's cowl which he may wear, no one can give any information, because no one has ever presumed to touch or explore the robes which were immediately contiguous to his flesh. Moreover, with respect to his other robes of linen, or possibly of woolen, all men are in a state of doubt, because no one had permission to make the necessary investigation. Next to the Dalmatic, his holy body is clothed with other costly robes of silk, the nature and description of which are not clearly ascertained, above which there had been put around him a sheet, almost nine cubits in length and three and a half in breadth, in which the whole mass of holy relics had been very decently swathed. This sheet had a fringe of linen thread of a finger's length on one of its sides, and was unquestionably a linen sheet. Upon the sides and ends of this sheet there was woven, by the ingenuity of its maker, a border of the breadth of an inch, bearing upon it a very minute and projecting workmanship, fabricated of the thread itself, and containing upon its extremity the figures of birds and beasts so arranged that, invariably between every two pairs of birds and beasts, there is interwoven the representation of a branching tree, which distinguishes and divides the figures. This representation of the tree, so tastefully depicted, appears to be putting forth its leaves, although small on both sides. 
under which, upon the adjacent compartment, the interwoven figures of animals again appear, and this ornamental border of trees and animals is equally visible upon the extreme parts of the sheet. This sheet was removed from his holy body at the time of his translation, and, on account of the gifts which are daily given by the faithful, was long preserved entire in the church. Above this sheet there was still another cloth of a thicker substance, and in fact of a threefold texture, which covered the whole surface of the sheet last mentioned and all the relics beneath it. And above this there was still a third envelope, saturated with wax which had covered the inner coffin of the holy body externally and all the holy relics. This cloth was proved not to have belonged to the sacred remains within, but was conjectured to have been superadded for the purpose of excluding the troublesome nuisance of dust. Now the three cloths were taken away from the body of the holy bishop, and instead of them were put upon it others, much more elegant and costly, of which the first, which is placed immediately above his former robes, is of silk, thin and of the most delicate texture. The second is costly, of incomparable cloth, and the third, which is the outer and last of all the envelopes of his most sacred body, is of the finest linen. Moreover, he has with him in his coffin an altar of silver, a cloth for covering the sacramental elements, a golden chalice with a paten, and a pair of scissors retaining their original freshness, with which his hair was once cut, according to report. These are placed in this coffin upon a tablet standing in a transverse direction at his head, where, along with his ivory comb, they are hitherto preserved. The comb is perforated in the middle, so that almost three fingers may be slightly inserted into the hole. As to its size, its length appears to bear a becoming proportion to its breadth, for the length is almost equal to the breadth, except that for ornament there is slight difference between the one and the other. From length of time it has acquired a reddish tinge, and the character of white bone which belongs to it by nature is from its antiquity, exchanged for a ruddy tint. Thus, with these robes, the coffin of the holy Bishop Cuthbert is protected, and of the other holy relics, the head of Oswald, the glorious king and martyr of Christ, is the only one honorably deposited with it. Chapter 43 Of his innermost coffin, with what variety of wonderful workmanship it is fabricated and engraved. We have hitherto treated of the manner in which Cuthbert, the glorious Bishop of Christ, was placed in his coffin. We will now give a description of that inner coffin itself. In this inner coffin he was first placed in the island of Lindisfarne, when he was raised from his grave, and in this his incorruptible body has been hitherto always preserved. It is quadrangular, like a chest, and its lid is not elevated in the middle, but flat, so that its summit, whether of lid or sides, is all along level and even. The lid is like the lid of a box, broad and flat. The lid itself is a tablet of wood, serving for an opening, and the whole of it is made to be lifted up by means of two circles or rings, which are fixed in its midway breadth, the one in the direction of his feet, and the other in that of his head. By these rings the lid is elevated and let down, and there is no lock or fastening whatever to attach it to the coffin. The coffin is made entirely of black oak, and it may be doubted whether it has contracted that color of blackness from old age, from some device, or from nature. 
The whole of it is externally carved with very admirable engraving, of such minute and most delicate work, that the beholder, instead of admiring the skill or powers of the carver, is lost in amazement. The compartments are very circumscribed and small, and they are occupied by diverse beasts, flowers, and images, which seem to be inserted, engraved, or furrowed out of the wood. This coffin is enclosed in another outer one, which is entirely covered by hides, and is surrounded and firmly bound by iron nails and bandages. The third coffin, which is the outermost of all, is decorated with gold and precious stones, which, by means of indented flutings projecting from the second coffin, for which, in due order, similar projections are fabricated in this, is closely attached and fastened to it by long iron nails. This coffin cannot possibly be separated from the rest, because these nails can by no device be drawn out without fracture. So there's Reginald's catalog of the contents of Cuthbert's shrine-slash-tomb-slash-reliquary. We'll talk a little bit more about the actual objects next episode, uh, when we get to see the state they're in in the early 1800s. Instead, uh, let's look at the idea of incorruptibility, which is the central theme surrounding Cuthbert's remains. There's a lot of ambiguity and contradiction in definitions of incorruptibility um, that makes it a bit tricky to pin down, um, and frankly also makes it rather easy for people's motives to start looking a bit shady. Um, it's one of these things where a very rosy and idealized and simplified version is popularized, and then when observers are disappointed in the reality of what they see, a more precise technical definition is brought out that ends up sounding a lot like an excuse for not delivering on what was promised. Now, I should confess that I've been reading a lot about Cuthbert, um, too much, really. Uh, if you saw the photo I tweeted last month of the copy of The Relics of St. Cuthbert that arrived from interlibrary loan at my local circulation desk, uh, I walked to campus from my house to pick it up, expecting an ordinary book. Uh, this was a nearly 10-pound tome that looked like it belonged chained down to a big reference desk somewhere. Um, but it was great, um, and its size was in part a function of providing big, detailed plates of images of the relics, um, though sadly for such a lavish presentation, only a handful were in color. Uh, but anyway, I've been deeply focused on Cuthbert, um, and not so much on broader discussions or theories or interpretations of incorruptibility, so the comments that follow are mainly based on the work of Carolyn Walker Bynum, which I've read over the years, um, especially her article, Material Continuity, Personal Survival, and the Resurrection of the Body, a Scholastic Discussion in its Medieval and Modern Contexts, which you can find in her book, Fragmentation and Redemption. Um, I've also done some general internet reading on incorruptibility, uh, and I'm relying on my own memories of religion class from the two years I was in a Catholic grade school, uh, fifth and sixth grades as it happens and from which I distinctly remember being shown pictures of the incorrupt body of St. Bernadette of Lourdes, uh, which brings us straight to one of these issues of definition and expectation and authenticity, because that body is displayed, uh, like many incorrupt bodies, in a glass coffin so that it can be viewed. But the flesh you're seeing is actually a painted wax mask or, or other flesh-simulating material. 
incorrupt bodies that are displayed without a mask, um, and those do also exist, uh, don't usually look like a person asleep. Um, they basically look like mummies, quite well-preserved, but clearly dead, desiccated corpses. So incorrupt is clearly not an absolute term. If we're being generous, we could say it merely represents a dramatic, uh, indeed, Catholic authorities would insist miraculous, attenuation of the process of decay, um, but not necessarily its complete arrest. Where I'm left confused, uh, and where I rather wish I'd had more time to read a book on how the doctrine of incorruptibility has developed over the centuries and into modern observance, uh, where I'm confused is that I'm told that mummification or unusual preservation after embalming does not qualify a body as incorrupt. Uh, it has to be a miracle. Um, but a lot of those uncovered bodies sure do look mummified to me, uh, so I'm not sure how that hair gets split to distinguish a natural process from a miraculous one. It's easier to forgive amazement and wonder by medieval people, uh, many of whom probably had more direct life experience with death and decay than we do today, especially the monks who maintained graveyards. We're told by Bede that when the monks of Lindisfarne opened up Cuthbert's grave 11 years after his death, they were expecting to find nothing but dry bone, which is one explanation for why the carved wooden coffin is just a bit too small for Cuthbert, who has to be put into it on his side and a little bit curled up, because it wasn't meant to be a coffin, it was meant to be a reliquary. What is it Shakespeare's gravedigger says? Uh, Hamlet asks, how long will a man lie in his grave before he starts to rot? And the gravedigger replies, faith, if he be not rotten before he die, as we have many pocky corpses nowadays that will scarce hold the laying in, he will last you some eight year or nine year. And York has been fully skeletonized within 23 years. So it's understandable that finding a well-preserved mummy after 11 years when you expected nothing but bones might well be perceived as a miracle. From that, you have to then allow for a bit of hyperbole of description where he looked shockingly good for a corpse that's been dead for a decade shifts over to he looked like he was just sleeping. So there's an issue there of managed expectations um, and perhaps modern expectations versus medieval ones for what decay would look like. One time about 10 years ago, uh, I left town uh, to go spend more than a month away during the summer. And after I'd been on the road for just a couple of hours, in a blinding flash of horror, I realized that I had left a nearly complete loaf of sandwich bread that I'd meant to bring with me sitting on the counter in an unair conditioned kitchen in the summer, and it was going to be there for more than a month. I expected to come back six weeks later and find Swamp Thing living in my kitchen. Instead, I found an ordinary-looking loaf of bread. When I picked it up... With some trepidation, I should say, uh, I was struck with fear and trembling, much like the monks of Lindisfarne. I discovered that it was completely dried out and weirdly light, uh, basically a bread loaf-sized crouton. But externally, it pretty much looked like it had when I left it. It was basically a bread mummy. And yet, it definitely left me filled with wonderment. It's certainly a story I'll still trot out on occasion, as I've done here. It wasn't a miracle. It was mad science. It was man tampering in God's domain with our unholy food preservatives. And no doubt some would indeed say that the fact that mold wouldn't eat my bread is proof of toxins and unnatural chemicals that we shouldn't be putting in our bodies and all that. Um, but I was shocked because it was almost exactly the opposite of what I expected to find. And I suspect uh, I have in the past told some versions of this same story at parties 
where the bread was still soft and completely unchanged, because in many ways, for the sake of narratively conveying my surprise at this unnatural phenomenon, it might as well have been. So I'm sympathetic to that kind of exaggeration, which leads to good memoir, but bad journalism and bad history, at least as judged by modern academic standards. Setting aside a precise definition of what counts as being incorrupt, it's a bit easier to articulate the theological rationale behind why it's believed to happen. The most basic principle behind it is that of bodily resurrection. At the Last Judgment, all people will be returned to life in a resurrected body. The dominant Catholic tradition has this as a reconstituted physical body, with the union of material body and soul being a fundamental element of humanity, so that if you were raised in only a spiritual body, as some traditions have it, um, then you just wouldn't really be truly human. This debate also gets echoed in the persecution of various heretical claims about what kind of body the resurrected Christ had. Was it physical? Was it spiritual? And if it was physical, as the Doubting Thomas story emphasizes, how is it that it seems to change appearance and pass through walls and things that we might otherwise consider rather ghostly? Um, and these questions are all hotly debated in scholastic theological discourse in the Middle Ages, uh, as well as in heresy trials. But anyway, there is an underlying idea, though it's also a subject of debate and disagreement, that your physical body after death is essentially waiting around to be reconstituted at Judgment Day. The body your soul returns to will be, as it were, your repaired and glorified corpse. The debate here is that some of the more philosophical theologians argue that the resurrected body doesn't have to be made up of your you know, original atoms, as it were, but that God could use whatever matter he likes to assemble a new body for you. Uh, but certainly in popular discourse, um, and Carolyn Walker Bynum shows uh, that even theologians like Thomas Aquinas, who ostensibly argue that resurrection doesn't require this physical continuity of you know, the particles of the body, uh, they nonetheless fall back on that idea elsewhere in their own writing. Um, it just really seems hard to shake this idea that it isn't really your body if it doesn't have some particles of your authentic, original corpse in it. Anyway, moving past the theological conundrums, you end up with this idea that a saint's body might be preserved in something closer to or anticipating its ultimate glorified state at the resurrection, as a kind of marker of the saint's present existence in heaven, and as a reminder to the faithful of the future resurrection from death and corruption of all bodies. This is indeed the explanation we see in our texts uh, for Cuthbert's incorruptibility. It's a sign manifested by God through the body of the saint to prove sanctity and remind us of the promised eternal life. Running parallel to this concept, though, is another philosophical, theological thread, uh, albeit bordering on heretical um, when it's applied to pre-judgment bodies. Uh, and this is that corruptibility is the inheritance of sin, i.e. sin causes decay. So if you were perfect and without sin, or all but original sin, then it might follow that your body would not decay, or would do so only very slowly. This borders on heresy because orthodox theology insists that all human flesh is perishable, ashes to ashes and all that. Um, and it is so until it achieves its glorified state at the judgment, uh, with Christ achieving this state ahead of everyone else at his resurrection. Um, so the orthodox assertion is that to be preserved from decay cannot be something achieved by your own merits or as an intrinsic property of right living, um, but has to be a special dispensation by God, a kind of anticipation of the coming glorification. Now, 
while sinlessness preserving your body is a theologically sketchy proposition, uh, the reverse regularly appears in clerical commentaries, uh, namely that sinful people will have their sinfulness revealed in a festering corpse uh, or even in a body that begins to rot with gangrene while they're still alive. You even have a little hint of that in the Hamlet quote. Medieval writers show very little reticence to assert that particular proposition. Uh, it only gets tricky when you end up with a saintly person who suffers such an affliction at the end of their life, and you have some. Um, but in that case, you can just say that God purified and exalted their virtue by testing them so severely or by making their endurance of such things a shining example of patience and faith to everyone else. Um, so it's a neatly self-affirming system. Anyway, those are conventional explanations for incorruptibility. I just thought I'd throw out one other idea. Uh, I haven't seen it in anything I've read so far, which is not to say that it hasn't been proposed before. If it has, then all credit to those scholars. And if it hasn't, then all blame uh, to me for however crazy it might be. Um, and this is a humoral theory. So back in episode 34, How Battle Abbey Lost Its Divine Favor, we talked about the theory of a balance of contradictory elements in the body and how, according to medical theory articulated by Avicenna, aging and death is partly a process of this balance tipping out of whack. It's thought that old people lose a lot of their inner moisture as it's consumed by the heat of life, and they begin to dry out until ultimately they're sort of out of gas and die. You actually hear an echo of this in today's text in the explanation of how the other relics caused the coffin to rot. Reginald says those bones still contained a residual heat, which drew up to itself the moisture from the earth, and that caused the staining and the rotting of the wood. Anyway, it occurs to me that if you run with that medieval concept, that age and venerability lead to a natural and appropriate drying out, then it's possible to see how the desiccation of a mummified corpse might not be perceived as, as obviously a sign of death as we would take it to be. Um, but rather that it's categorized within an extreme process of aging, but not decay. I don't know, food for thought. Next episode, we'll look a bit more forensically at Cuthbert's remains and the different theories of what the nature of his incorruption was in 1104, and we'll see what they look like in 1827 as we hear from James Rain's account of his investigation into Cuthbert's tomb in that year. Our mystery word from last time was jumprid or yumprid. Um, it's an I in the text it occurs in, uh, but it's I as a consonant, so usually rendered J. Um, but in this case, probably not a hard J, as it were. It's a bit uncertain. I picked this word out from Mayhew and Skeet's Concise Dictionary of Middle English, where they define it as mourning or grieving, which seemed thematically appropriate. The uncertainty kicked in when I was looking it up later in the online Middle English Dictionary hosted by the University of Michigan, where it gave the definition as confusion, uncertainty, bewilderment. Uh-oh. The problem, it seems, is that this word is, as near as I can tell, a hapax legomenon, the philological term for a word that only occurs once in the corpus of a language. So a term primarily of relevance to dead languages, where we have a limited body of surviving work. Since most of these languages predate dictionaries, determining the meaning of a word that only occurs once in the context of a single sentence can be incredibly difficult, if not entirely impossible. Uh, and indeed, it's almost inevitably speculative. So what we have here are two educated guesses about the meaning of yomprid or jumprid. 
This word appears in the poem Cleanness, also known as Purity, one of the alliterative Middle English poems attributed to the Pearl Poet. Part of the poem tells the story of Noah's flood, uh, and that's where the line containing our word occurs. The line describes the reaction of Noah and his family when the dove finally comes back with the olive branch in its beak. It's line 491, and it goes, Then was there joy in that gin where jumpered er drecht, and more comfort in that coffer that was clay daubed. Now, don't quote me on my Middle English vowels there. I'm sure they're horribly wrong. Um, a modern translation of the line would be, then there was joy in that gin, contraption, uh, meaning the ark. So the Middle English gin is related to engine and also ingenuity, uh, and here means a thing created by human skill. Um, so there was joy in that man-made thing where jumpered, whatever that means, was before, comfort in that container that was daubed with clay. So the online dictionary, uh, which is based on the work of Hans Kurath, takes jumpered to be related to a set of jump words that mean jumbled, confused, higgledy-piggledy, uh, and that's how they get to confusion or bewilderment. There's actually another jump theory offered by the great turn-of-the-century editor, um, Sir Israel Golans, who takes it to be a reference to jumper, meaning a kind of drill, um, and thus translates this line as there being joy in that gin that was riveted together. Uh, which I suppose works in parallel with there being comfort in that clay-daubed container, uh, but it seems like a bit of a stretch to me. Mayhew and Skeet, whom I started from, uh, which maybe biases me a bit in their favor, propose that this word derives from Old English roots. So yomer, meaning troubled or sad, plus raden, meaning, I'm not quite sure actually. It could be a few things, depending on variants of form, um, but I think they're referring to a word meaning condition or rule or possibly counsel. Uh, we talked about rad as in Athelrad, unrad, and read way back in the early history of this podcast. Um, so maybe something literally like ruled or guided by sorrow or sorrow-minded, uh, which Mayhew and Skeet render as mourning or grief. So yomarraden, yompred, or jumpred. There's something there, I think, um, but we've got that P that suddenly appeared out of nowhere, uh, and that makes it sound kind of bogus. Um, well, because I do happen to favor this interpretation, basically because I think sorrow is a more natural opposite term to joy than confusion is and fits the general tenor of the scene better. Um, so because I like it, I'll try to explain away that pesky P. So where does it come from? Well, maybe through epenthesis another linguistic term we can add to our list for the day. Uh, epenthesis is the process where a sound is added to a word. So it describes uh, both the intrusive R you hear in pronunciations like Warsh and Washington, uh, or the A in Picanic Basket. What I wouldn't give to hear Lisa play another one of her jazzy tunes. Saxophone, saxophone. But it also happens inside consonant clusters, um, such as the P sound that shows up in hamster, which is not spelled with a P, and warmth, which I'd never noticed before, actually, but warmth has no P in it. But try to pronounce it without any P sound. Warm, warmth, warmth. It, it really can't be done. Uh, Anapenthesis can change spelling, as in the word pumpkin which was originally spelled pumpkin, P-U-M-K-I-N, uh, and that also explains why 
punkin with an N, punkin, is a variant. Anyway, all this might explain the P popping up uh, in between the M and the R that have been thrown together in a compound word. MR is not a natural consonant cluster in English. It really just doesn't occur. It's common enough in Nordic languages, but not ours. Uh, So you would expect us to be inclined to phonetically break up that cluster somehow. And perhaps that can make Yomer a more plausible route for Yumprid uh, in the end. Anyway, that's our word and linguistics lesson. For next episode, let's work on a new riddle. Our riddle this time is a very short one. What buries itself? That's it. What buries itself? Not St. Cuthbert. He seems to have had quite a lot of help, um, and he just won't stay buried either. I'll be back next episode with the answer to our riddle and the final installment of our Cuthbert series. Um, I'm not totally sure when that will be, to be honest. I'll be traveling off and on over the next two weeks, so my recording schedule is a bit uncertain, Uh, but I am going to try to get it up as soon as I can. Until then, you can keep up with us at the usual places. Follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast, or get more information about this and every episode on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can email me there with thoughts, questions, etc. at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. If you're listening to this, you've obviously found the show, but if you want to share it with other people who maybe aren't uh, as podcast app savvy as you are, the most recent few episodes are up on SoundCloud, which is easy to link to and use. Um, And we're also on Google Play uh, for people you know who don't use iTunes and also don't want to mess around with other podcatcher apps. Um, That's all for now. Until next time, thanks for listening.